This is an ABC podcast. Hey there, we here at Background Briefing are on a summer break at the moment, but we're going to be back in February 2023 with some more fresh investigations for you. Over summer though, we're replaying some of our favourite shows from the year just gone, and here's one of them. On Western Australia's tropical Kimberley coast, the biggest airport is in the tourist town of Broome. For many years, there was this double-decker bus permanently parked in a patch of bush facing right onto the runway. A man lived there who was a pilot. My name's Charles Batham. Uh, I fly a microlight trike here in Broome. It's uh, an international airport, which makes it rather... In this YouTube video, Charles is standing on the runway on this sunny day with his hands on his hips. He's this tall, confident guy in his mid-60s with scruffy, gingery hair blowing in the wind and he's looking down the barrel of the camera. He looks confident, cocky even. Believe it or not, I've been here now 11 years, more by accident than anything else. I don't normally stay in countries this long. The video Um, was filmed in Broome in 2009 by this bunch of Englishmen who were travelling the world raising money for charity. And Charles can be seen showing them around his weird home at the airport. He lives in the bus alongside this big converted aeroplane hangar. Welcome to the West Manor. Here it is. Um, the reason for the West Manor was that uh, coming here as an eccentric Englishman, the airport staff felt that all gentlemen, of course, lived in a manor. And this is the western end of the runway. So this became known as the West Manor. And that's it. I mean, it's a very simple abode. I think you'll agree. But lots of fun. The Englishmen are impressed. But even to them in this short interaction, it seems clear that there's just something about Charles. Charles is the most entertaining character, and here he's running a trike flight school. But the good news is, from his point of view, he's managed to secure himself some access directly onto the airfield. Quite remarkable, really. Obviously, uh, a very good diplomat, and somebody who's very used to getting his own way. It turns out Charles Batham wasn't just used to getting his own way. He had a terrible secret. And when people found out, just a few years after this video was recorded, he disappeared from Broome and from Australia, with the police chasing after him. For legal reasons, the full story of the hunt for Charles Batham has never actually been told. That is, until now. It's a case that raises a whole lot of questions about how Australian criminals are able to stay on the run and the lies they tell to do so. Reporter Erin Park is with the ABC's National Regional Reporting Team and she picks up the story now. Who's that? Yeah, that's that's the low-life there, Charles. Is that how you remember him looking? Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Steve Tucker is a laid-back boaty with a beard and a throaty chuckle. I've known him for years. But as he watches the YouTube video of Charles Batham, I can feel him tense up. Well, I hate the bloke for what he's done. He's um, hurt a lot of people and uh, the guy should never have been, in my view, he should never have been allowed in Broome for as long as he was. Steve's offered to drive me to the place that Charles Batham first parked up his double-decker bus when he arrived in Broome back in the late 1990s. We head outside to the car. It's another hot day in the lead-up to a tropical storm. It's, it's the time here you wonder why you live here. Yeah, lucky we love it. <laughs> Excuse the mess. Oh, nice, very nice. 
It's a proper broom car. We're coming over towards the fishing club. The colours are just amazing in broom. It's a very deep red rich colour on the rocks and, and an amazingly aqua colour to the water. When Charles Batham first rolled into town, he lived in his bus here at a beach next to the Broome Port. And looking across the bay, it reminds me of something that someone told me years ago. It was something someone said when I was working as a barmaid at a local pub. I've heard it described as a sunny place full of shady characters. Does that fit? I think that's absolute nail on the head, eh? Absolute. <laughs> Steve reckons that he's met a lot of men like Charles Batham who are living in Northern Australia. They're men with something to hide. Men that are on the move for secret reasons. You make really good friends and then they leave, you know. It's, uh, it's always been a very transient town. And I guess that helps people slip in without too many questions being asked sometimes, doesn't it? Ah, uh, absolutely, yeah, yeah, yep. Just have to chuck a U-turn, I'm just going to go yeah. down here because this is where his bus used to originally be. As I'm talking to Steve, it's clear that the memories from this time are still very vivid for him oh, yeah, and still really troubling. Hear that thunder already? He first met Charles Batham through a friend who at the time was interested in finding out more about ultralight planes. We cottoned on early on in the piece that there was something wrong with the guy. You know, we used to go and have a beer in, in his bus there with him and he, you know, he used to boast that he came to Broome with a girl that was 17 at the time but he started going out with her at 15 and we're sort of, well, what's her parents think about that? Oh no, it was all right and all, you know. And he started showing, showing photos of her and stuff like that. Not dirty photos, not compromising ones, but certainly enough to have proof. And, and Mark and I turned around and discussed it with ourselves and just went, no, nah, we're just going straight to the cops. It was 1998, and Steve says he told the police what Charles Batham had shown him. But it seems as though nothing was done. I've asked the Broome police about this, and they've said that they have no record of Steve's report. Twelve years after Steve says he reported his suspicions to police, they acted on a fresh complaint, and they raided Batham's double-decker bus and his hangar at the airport. What they found was really serious. Child exploitation material. Dozens of indecent images of young children. I do remember hearing he'd been charged, uh, thinking, great. Steve was really glad to hear that Charles Batham had been arrested, but the relief would be short-lived. Batham had an established business. He owned a double-decker bus and an ultralight aeroplane, so police figured that he wasn't going anywhere, and so he was granted bail. It was a decision that would have huge ramifications, because the police would later discover evidence of even more disturbing crimes committed by Charles Batham. And then, three months after he was released, Batham hopped on a plane to Perth, boarded a flight to Malaysia, and then he disappeared. Steve was gutted. Extremely disappointed. Really disappointed. 
I don't know, I've never been in that situation, but I feel anyone who's been hurt in the way he's hurt people, they need some form of closure as part of their healing. And, and if they don't get that, not only have they been abused, they've been robbed of whatever little bit of justice they can get out of this, you know. I was reporting on the case at the time and was as baffled as anyone. How was Batham able to just board a plane and fly away? and then traipse around the world avoiding police for so long. It would take me a while to get to the bottom of that. But first I needed to find out who Charles Batham really was. And it turns out that there were clues and warning signs in his past. Charles Gordon Batham was born in Belfast in 1944. He was an only child and he was brought up in boarding schools in England, Ireland and Sri Lanka. Then when he was 17, he moved to Africa. So we have three zebra, we have about 12 impala, and then we also keep some horses. This is John Payton. He and his wife run a bed and breakfast on a rural property in Zambia. But back in the 70s, he lived in a share house in South Africa with Charles Batham. Can you recall what you first thought when you met him? Well, he was tall and sort of ready blonde, curly hair. He had a characteristic snort, like sort of thing. He used to do that a lot at the time. I don't know if he still does. And he was fine to be around with on the whole. You know, he was quite amusing and he was quite nice to talk to on the whole. You know, he's quite a pleasant chap. But we didn't really have enough in common to be mates, if you know what I mean. They ended up living together for about a year. But during that time... John noticed something weird about Charles Batham, something that made him uncomfortable. When I first moved in, it was a four-bedroom house. It was in quite a nice area. It was an A-framed house, two-storey. Charlie said he needed a place to stay, so I said, fine, come and join me. So that was fine. We didn't see much other. We passed like ships in the night, I suppose. But he did have this habit of picking up rather young girls, even from the earliest times, it was something that was remarked on. I mean, they weren't under, well, I don't know, they were sort of 14, 15, something like that. And he used to bring them back occasionally. A 30-year-old man bringing home girls aged 14 or 15 years old. If there was sex involved, it was illegal. It seems strange now that more wasn't made of this at the time. John didn't report it to the police. He says he did try to raise it with Charles, but Charles would always shut it down. We just felt that this wasn't right and that he should find somebody, girls nearer his own age or at least older than the ones he was bringing back. There was never any discussion about it, really. He didn't want to discuss it and he would just mumble or snort or something and he would carry on. So I didn't enjoy that year that he was with me, no. It wasn't a very pleasant atmosphere. Charles Batham eventually moved out of the house, and a few months later, he set off on an around-the-world adventure that would actually make him kind of famous for a while. See, it turns out Charles Batham was an expert at globetrotting, and this trip would be the perfect rehearsal for life as an international fugitive. This is the story that Charles Batham told people. It's hard to know how much of it is actually true. It was 1975 when the trip began. Charles Batham set out on a Honda Goldwing motorbike with a plan to cross the Sahara Desert. And at some stage, he met a French girl called Veronique and she joined him on his travels. 
Veronique was a small woman and young, but not underage. For 10 years, they travelled like this, crossing 90 countries on the Honda motorbike. Charles would later claim that the trip broke the Guinness World Record for the most number of countries visited. When the epic journey finally came to an end in Sydney, newspaper clippings from the time show that it was such a big deal that the couple were even welcomed by the Lord Mayor of Sydney. I found photographs from that day. Charles Batham is grinning and hugging Veronique on the steps of the Sydney Opera House, each with a glass of champagne in hand. And soon he was settled in Sydney, dazzling people with his tales of adventure. Just before we start, so it's crystal clear, you're happy for me to use the audio, but you'd prefer not to be identified. Was that the agreement? Correct. We'll call this man Billy. He went to parties with Charles Batham in the early 90s. So and did he share any stories that gave you any insights into his past? Well, only that you know, he'd just come off this world's longest motorcycle journey, or it was at the time, and he had all these photo albums with clippings from all around the world from newspapers. He did have, I believe, the Guinness Book of Records for the world's longest motorcycle journey at that time. And what sort of vibes did he give off as a person? Enthusiastic. Somebody who wanted to get things done. You know, I'm going to do this and that's that. I mean, he didn't go out of his way to, to offend people, but he certainly wasn't worried if they were offended by him. At the time, Charles Batham ran a successful rose-selling business in Sydney's Inner West, a business that now seems full of missed warning signs. He hired a dozen or so teenage girls and got them to wear short white dresses to sell the roses to courting couples in bars and restaurants. Billy says he also remembers a teenager that Batham referred to at the time as his new girlfriend. He says she was noticeably young, but not necessarily illegally young. Billy thinks she may have been around 16 or 17 years old. Charles Batham was about 50. Again, it seems strange now that the age difference didn't cause people to look twice or ask more questions. But Billy says that this was a wild time and the parties that they attended together were pretty loose. Let's just say there was, there was never anything went on that wasn't um, within everybody's control and understanding. So fun times, but consensual and legal. Always. It's a very important distinction. Yeah. Absolutely. There were never any suspicions, anything that made you wonder? No. Said he liked younger women, but, you know, like older teens, I guess. But he certainly never expressed any interest in anyone younger. After about a decade in Sydney, the relationship broke up and Charles Batham announced that he was moving to Broome. Well, yeah, I didn't, I didn't, yeah, I didn't have anything to do with him after that. Never really heard from him again. As far as I knew, he was in Broome and, you know, running a tourist business. The tropical northern town of Broome is where things would end up coming unstuck for Charles Batham. He arrived in the late 90s, again rolling into town in a pretty distinctive way, this time in that silver double-decker bus. He started making friends with some local families and gaining their trust. Sometimes the kids would spend time with him without their parents around. Among them was Sherry. Sherry was just six years old when she first met Charles Batham. Before long, she was helping him out around the place, promoting his new business, offering scenic flights to tourists. He had that business for as long as I knew him. He actually used to get me when I was really, really young. 
because um, he was a friend of the family. He used to get me to like hand out flyers and stuff along Cable Beach. For a while, Charles Batham even had his bus parked in Sherry's family's backyard before he eventually moved on to the Broome Airport. He maintained a close relationship with Sherry and her family. When Sherry's father died, she believes Charles Batham took note. I'm sure that was probably, you know, like a turning point for him because, you know, suddenly this family is vulnerable and has, like, lots of other fucked up shit going on. Sherry was nine years old when Charles Batham invited her over to check out a new treehouse that he said that he'd built for her. I just went back to his place after the market that day and... Um, you know, we, we were at his place and, like, he showed me the treehouse and stuff and we, you know, sort of hung out for a bit. He offered her a drink and the two went inside. We've just gone into his little shipping container office thing um, and he sits me on his lap and I can't... We had our drink of cordial, green cordial. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I can remember, you know, you can remember those little details. And he sits me on his lap and he starts showing me pictures of him having group sex with um, a bunch of dudes and this woman, girl, not sure if, you know, she wasn't very old. And um, he gets me to take off my pants and stuff and, um, you know... Charles Batham indecently assaulted Sherry as she sat on his lap. She was distressed and looking for a way out. So she made up some excuse about needing to go home and asked him for a lift. He did eventually just take me home and I just went home and I hopped in the shower and that's that's where the memory stopped. Sherry kept the details of what happened that day to herself. For years she stayed silent. She moved with her family to Queensland and she took the secret with her. But back in Broome, the police were closing in on Charles Batham. In 2010, someone in the community noticed that he was buying a lot of gifts for another young girl in town and they became worried. The police were notified. They interviewed the girl and she told them she'd received inappropriate emails from him. Police sprang into action. They raided his bus. And then, nearly three months later, Charles Batham disappeared. From far away in Queensland, Sherry saw the stories about Batham's arrest and his escape. I decided I was ready to let those demons out and Mm. deal with that shit. Um, You know, like I was just up one night thinking about it and was like, how, who do I contact, where, what? Uh, So I just jumped on Crime Stoppers and just submitted a thing and they were like, they just sent me the info I needed and um, and that was it. She made a report to WA Police about what Batham had done to her. But by this stage, Batham had fled. The police had lost him. Years went by and Sherry wasn't getting much information from WA Police. She was getting frustrated and she wanted answers. Eventually, in 2019, she sent them an email. I just sent an email being like, you know, it's been a few years. I just want to touch base. I don't know if you're even still the right person to get in contact with. I just, you know, is there anything, you know, that you can tell me? 
Like, is he dead? Like, just anything. <laughs> so, yeah, he sent me back that the info in there saying that he had issued a new passport with a new name. And when you, when you search that name, right, the mm-hmm. new name that he got, mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like a dead US senator. It was about then that I got in touch with Sherry for the first time. And it turns out we both had the same questions. How the hell did Charles Batham manage to escape? And how did he evade police for so long? Since then, that's what I've been determined to find out. So I'm trekking through the centre of Perth towards the WA Police headquarters and I'm a bit anxious just to make sure that I get this interview right. Um, the detectives that have been involved with the Batham case from the beginning, I have got to know them fairly well, but they've only been granted this one opportunity to do an interview. So I've got to make sure that I get all the information I need. Hopefully they're in the mood to talk. The police HQ is a big, intimidating building, nine storeys high. Hello, my name is Erin Park. I'm here to uh, meet up with a couple of detectives. After coming through reception, I'm taken to a meeting room where I sit down with the two men who know more about Charles Batham's movements than anyone else. We're rolling now, just get you to say your name and job title for me. Uh, Bruce Bowers, Detective Sergeant, WA Police. Wayne Davies, Detective Sergeant, West Australia Police. Pretty quickly, they launch into the full story of Charles Batham's arrest and how for nine long years, he evaded their attempts to catch him. So basically, towards the end of 2010, uh, we received a, a report through uh, Department of Child Protection in Brook um, in relation to Charles Batham. They had raised some concerns in relation to a, a complaint that they'd received so we arranged for some interviews to be done uh, with one of our victims and that's how the investigation started as such. This wasn't Sherry. This was yet another young girl being assaulted a few years after Sherry had left town. This girl was 12 years old. Again, her family had been friendly with Charles Batham since she was a toddler. And as she grew up, she'd spent a lot of time with him at his place, doing homework and swimming in the pool that he'd installed inside his big aircraft hangar. But over the years, rumours began to circulate about the abnormal amount of time that she and Charles were spending together. And child protection authorities became alarmed and they flagged it with the police. Within hours, the girl was interviewed. She didn't make any serious allegations at this stage, but police felt suspicious enough to raid Charles Batham's property. Initially, obviously, we seized his computers um, and we seized a camera. We also seized a A4 photograph as well, which contained child exploitation material. Uh, so those were the initial finds. Police searched Charles Batham's camera and hard drives, and on them they found photos of the girl. There were several where she was sitting on a toilet naked and another of her using a sex toy, which she told the police that Charles had given to her. Charles Batham was charged with possessing child exploitation material, encouraging a child to engage in sexual behaviour and making an indecent recording of a child. But despite that, he was released on bail. He wasn't asked to report to the police station 
He wasn't asked to surrender his passport. He wasn't even asked to provide a surety that he would turn up to court. The investigating officers, Bruce Bowers and Wayne Davies, have defended their decision to grant bail, saying it was based on the evidence that they had at the time. They were still what we call non-contactable offending. They were inappropriate images that he had, um, inappropriate images of victim A, and also child exploitation material which had been downloaded from the internet itself. The full scale of Charles Batham's offending, including the physical abuse, wouldn't come to light until months later. In the circumstances, the police say he wasn't considered a flight risk. There was no hint that he was thinking of moving overseas? or No, no. And our thoughts were he had a very established business in Broome. That business had been running for well over 11 years. It was very prominent within the tourist industry in Broome. It was very well advertised. Um, so, no, we had no inkling that he would travel overseas. But Charles Batham did travel overseas. In February 2011, he fled Broome, first on a plane to Perth, then on to Kuala Lumpur in Malaysia. And within days, he touched down in his homeland, England. And it came as a complete surprise when he sold his assets and obviously fled. Um, we obviously did not expect that. But um, for a man to do that and drop everything and obviously get some form of financial support and then to take off, um, we're up against it. It turns out, and this kind of blows my mind, there's no automatic system in place to block people who've been charged with criminal offences from leaving Australia. And police hadn't put Charles Batham on a list of people for Border Force to look out for. Later, it was discovered that Charles Batham had been quietly selling off his assets, preparing to leave forever. But he did leave one parting gift. So a gentleman who was a friend of Batham's came into the police station at Broome and handed us a letter and said, look, I've just received this letter from uh, Charles. Uh, and basically it was a letter saying that he now called himself a fugitive. Uh, and by the time that his friend read this letter, Charles would be far away. Charles Batham was now an international fugitive. And here's the thing I've learned about international policing. It's complicated, cumbersome, and it can be as frustrating as hell. Even though the WA police knew that he'd gone to England, they couldn't just head over there and arrest him. Batham was in a different jurisdiction, with different rules, and he knew it. The detectives in Broome were now facing layers of international bureaucracy to extradite him. And first of all, they needed to actually find him. The detectives needed intel, and they knew where to start. Charles Batham had been flying ultralight planes for decades, and he always seemed to be hanging out at airports. So they quickly reached out to flying clubs across the UK to tell them to be on the lookout. Charles Batham was a very tall man, spoke with a very, what I'll say, posh English accent. He, he was very recognisable. And like we say, the microlight fraternity was extremely small. Everyone knew everyone within that. And that's when they confirmed, yes, this was a person who they'd been speaking to. It worked. Ultralight pilots across rural England were sending through tip-offs. So initially he was looking for work, so he went to Wiltshire. Um, he then said he was going to go and travel to Sussex. And we actually got the Sussex police to do some investigations for us on our behalf. 
police in Sussex quickly got back to the two Australian detectives on the case with good news. They'd found Charles Batham. Or at least, it seemed to be Charles Batham, but he was using a different name. And that's when he initially then gave the name of Charles Edwin Shannon. So British police actually spoke with Charles Batham within days of him going on the run. But incredibly, they didn't arrest him. To understand why, you need to understand a bit about how international policing works. Basically, Interpol runs a series of colour-coded alerts for people who are wanted by different countries. And when he was first on the run, Charles Batham was only subject to a blue alert. That means police around the world were asked to keep an eye out for him and send any information they got back to Australia. But they had no legal power to arrest him. Was that a bit of a missed opportunity? Like, was there the legal capacity for the British police to actually arrest him at that point? Or is it not that simple? No, not at that stage. Could we only had the blue in, like international blue notice in, in place at the time. So, yeah, all we could do was just, just act on that information and then progress our investigation. But when Sussex police spoke to Batham, it was the only tip-off he needed. And just like that, he was on the run again, evading police for a second time. We didn't know at the time but Mr Batham was very well travelled prior to arriving in Australia. Police were only just starting to learn who they were up against. See, the detectives didn't actually know that much about Charles Batham when they first arrested him. And because of the different jurisdictions with different rules and information systems, they couldn't access that much information about his past. It was only when he was on the run that they tapped into international databases to work out exactly who they were chasing. He was very good at moving through Europe. And uh, what did come clear to us was that he was, uh, you know, he would have had a lot of friends and allies uh, across Europe and other countries that he could call on. And that obviously hindered us as well in our investigations. Working late into the night in this small office in Broome, the detectives tracked Charles Batham as he moved across Europe. They had the number plate of Batham's Fiat campervan, but they always seemed to be one step behind him. He was proving hard to catch. But detectives were about to make a massive break in their investigation, a break that would make the international hunt for Charles Batham all the more urgent. Back in Broome, there were now new tenants, a woman and her son, living at Charles Batham's old property. And they'd made a grim discovery. In the sandpit next to Charles Batham's aircraft hangar, the woman's seven-year-old son had found a small pink USB stick. When the woman took it and plugged it into her computer, she was horrified by what she found. The USB was filled with hundreds of photos of Charles Batham himself sexually abusing a child. Obviously, once we obtained the USB, which belonged to Charles Batham, then that's when we located images of our victims, or one of our victims, being offended against by Batham. So that was, that was very, obviously the evidence there is very extremely strong as well. We've got images of Baffin physically offending our victim. Up until then, they only had evidence of him taking some photographs of the girl naked. This material revealed the full extent of his depravity. Some of it fell within the most serious classification of child sexual assault material. It's extremely difficult. There's certainly a scale. And from my 25 years of experience is some of the worst I've seen that was captured during this investigation. And how significant is having, as dreadful as it is, having that actual 
evidence of the offending occurring. It's obviously grotesque, it's disgusting, it, it should never happen, um, but as an investigator it's, it's evidence. Um, it is evidence to us. It is so important that it corroborates a, you know, a victim's account. It's there, it's a thousand words, you know, it's, it's there for you to unfortunately see. Dozens of more serious offences were added to the arrest warrant for Charles Batham. The stakes were getting higher, but the hunt for Charles Batham was just getting started. On the next episode of Background Briefing, the unlikely story of how Charles Batham was captured and the struggle to bring him back to Australia to face justice. I remember the email coming through with the picture of the, of the vehicle and going, this is unbelievable. And we just basically hit Google Maps like there's no tomorrow. The police came. And so I looked for Charles, but he was gone. He was hiding in some person's house for, I think, five weeks. He was comfortable doing that. Uh, he knew his way around. He knew how to travel. Why did the police come? Why did they look after him? I do not know. We felt that Baffin had got one over on us. He had left, you know. He got one over on us, and we didn't want that. We wanted to get him back. You know, not only for us, but obviously especially for our victims. I have always wondered, you know, the lengths and depths of his crimes and I think that it's a lot worse than what is in the spotlight already. I think he was a lot worse than we already know. Background Briefing's sound producers are Lila Schunner and Ingrid Wagner. Sound engineering by Jen Parsonage. Fact-checking by Benjamin Spain. Background Briefing's supervising producer is Alex Mann. Executive producer is Tim Roxburgh. I'm Erin Park. You can subscribe to Background Briefing wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.